Well, hey, good morning, everybody, and thank you so much, John and worship team, for leading us in that time. Always an awesome time to get our minds on him and give him the praise that's due him. Would you agree with that? Awesome. Hey, turn with me to 1 Samuel. If you are uh, using one of the Bibles in the seat racks in front of you, it's on page 222. I made it really easy for you today, 222. Uh, the rest of you, it's uh, towards the beginning of the Bible, at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel that we have entitled, God is King. Can anyone say amen to that? God is King. He is a good King and we praise Him. So uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, if this is your first time or one of your first times here, welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. And my name is Andy Middlecoff. I'm one of the pastors here and I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, and, and there's also a couple kiosks you could go to to ask any questions and and so forth. But welcome here this morning. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 is where we're at. Um, a couple things. So, uh, man, I, I am thankful. I really enjoyed Vacation Bible School this week in the small part that I played, but I really am thankful and, and the whole staff is thankful uh, for those of you who helped out and served and uh, did all kinds of things for Vacation Bible School. What a, what a gift you are and what a blessing that was. So thank you very much. Appreciate that a lot. Also, um, June 24th was a very special day, not because it was my birthday, but because Roe versus Wade was reversed. I mean, that's truly, truly, I never would have imagined in my lifetime that that would happen. Um, so uh, me of little faith, right? But so those of you who have prayed, those of you who have done whatever you could, uh, thank you for that, and we praise God. Ultimately, he's, he's the miracle worker, so that's awesome. So uh, we know that the, the federal government is no longer going to uh, require every state to offer um, uh, abortion, uh, uh, but uh, the, the state of California is going to work hard to make sure that they are number one in the nation of, of uh, offering abortions. So we need to continue to pray and to get involved, help out with the pregnancy center. A lot of you do that already. Continue. Praise God for you. Um, also, uh, hey, we have the Uganda uh, team going out this Thursday morning. They're um, headed over, flying over to Uganda. Uh, there's a, a small group you should see up on the screen there going to minister to the people in Uganda at the Mercy Center. So they're going to be helping out with some medical things, some teaching some children, uh, visiting orphans and widows, and just being the hands and feet of Jesus while they are there with Venna and Wilford who uh, run the ministry over there. So we can pray for them. We'll pray for them this morning. Also, Thursday morning here at the church at 9.45, we're going to gather and pray for them. So if any of you guys would like to come and just send them off with us, uh, they would greatly appreciate that. So that's 9.45 this Thursday morning. So why don't we pray and then we'll jump into 1 Samuel chapter 15. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your precious and holy name. Uh, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we, we praise you for your grace and your mercy on our nation um, with uh, the Roe versus Wade decision in the Supreme Court. Lord, we can't thank you enough. And we do pray that uh, the people in our state would, would see that uh, the life in the mother's womb is a genuinely human life. We cannot get around it any other way. Uh, and Lord, help us to uphold and to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are uh, going to Uganda this week. We, we pray that you give them each physical, mental, emotional, and especially spiritual strength and energy. Use them mightily. May your spirit fill them. 
Lord, help them to speak your truth in love and be an encouragement to the other ministers there in Uganda and to the children and and the widows who need love and encouragement and support. So may your hand be with them and upon them. Uh, I pray that this morning as we gather and open up your holy and precious and true word, that you would get it into our hearts and minds and that you would give us understanding and we would wholeheartedly obey it, put it into practice and trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. So a couple decades ago, uh, the, the Dallas Police Department came up with 10 commandments on how to raise a juvenile delinquent. And I'm not going to give you all 10 commandments, uh, but a couple of them that stood out to me uh, that they listed in their 10 commandments of how to raise a juvenile delinquent. Uh, one was, never tell your children no. Let them do whatever they want because you want them to be happy, right? Uh, Another one was, if they ever get in trouble with a teacher or a principal or the law, uh, fight against the teacher or the principal and the law. Side up with your kid. And it gives eight more commandments on how to raise up a juvenile delinquent. So if you would like to know how to raise up a juvenile delinquent, I can give you the website. Uh, You can find it, right? So, No, Uh, the point is obvious. You read those and you go, oh my goodness, I don't want to follow any of those Ten Commandments. I want to do the opposite of of those commandments of raising a juvenile delinquent. And this morning, what we're going to look at is three commandments on how to set yourself up to fall. How to set yourself up to fail as a believer in Christ. We're going to look at uh, three ways that King Saul set himself up to fail, to fall, to sin, And we're going to learn from his bad example, a good example of what not to do. So I'm going to do a little reverse psychology on you this morning. We're going to look at um, how we can fall so that we won't do it, right? Uh, So first of all, what I'd like to do before we get into that is some of the historical background here of 1 Samuel 15. And I'm just going to give you a little uh, history lesson from chapter 10 through 14 up to chapter 15. So in uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, Uh, King Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Before that, the Israelites were led by judges. Now they have the first king. They wanted a king because they were afraid of their enemies who constantly were attacking them. And they wanted a king to, to, to gather together an army and to fight against their enemies and to win. And in doing that, they were rejecting God as their king and looking to King Saul as their king. So he becomes king. And we wonder, okay, is he the kind of king that God really wants or is he the kind of king that man really wants, right? A mighty stud that can lead their battle. So we get into chapter 11 of 1 Samuel and we find out that he certainly is the kind of king that the Israelites wanted. He helped them in the first battle once he was king to win over the Ammonites, to defeat the Ammonites, to be victorious. And the people of Israel were so excited. But then we get into chapter 12 And the prophet Samuel says, wait, wait, hold on, guys. Remember, if we're going to continue in victory, all of us, including the king, need to prioritize trusting God and obeying God, right? That's chapter 12. Then we get into chapter 13, and oh, our hopes are dashed. We hoped not only would he be a mighty military leader, but he'd also be a mighty spiritual leader. Well, God gave him very direct uh, very, a very direct command, and he said, uh, Saul, I want you to wait to offer a sacrifice to me until Samuel comes. Samuel's going to offer that sacrifice. Uh, Saul became afraid of the enemy who was encroaching on them, and he offered it himself. 
just before uh, Samuel got there. He completely rejected the word of the Lord. As a result, the consequence for his disobedience, and there's always a consequence, guys. Today, back then, there's always a consequence for disobedience. His consequence was that his kid, his son, his grandson, etc. would not be kings after him. He lost the dynasty. In chapter 13, he got to remain king, but he lost his dynasty. Then we get to chapter 14 and we see uh, more uh, battles that, that King Saul and his son Jonathan win. And also we see ultimately that he's probably not the spiritual leader that the Israelites really needed. He was a mighty military leader, but not the spiritual leader. Which brings us to chapter 15, our chapter this morning, where we are going to look at how do we set ourselves up to fall and fail. Anyone ready to learn how to fail? All right, point number one, command number one. Convince yourself, if you're in your notes, you can follow along there and write them down. Convince yourself that God accepts partial and selective obedience. Partial and selective obedience. And we see this starting in the first couple of verses where God gives a very direct command to Saul. He says, Saul, I want you to do this. Go and get it done. So verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Look at that with me. It says, and Samuel, this is the prophet, said to Saul the king, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. In other words, Samuel is saying, what I'm about to tell you is not my word. This is God's word to you. And he says, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted or, or seen what Amalek, that's the Amalekites, did to Israel in opposing them, in opposing Israel on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Verse 3, now go, listen, and strike Amalek, the Amalekites, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. When you read verse 3, is there a part of you that's a bit shocked? Like, really? The God of love would command Saul to completely annihilate the Amalekites. What's up with that? And, and this is something that people will bring up to you. They probably have. If they haven't, they will. Uh, uh, those of you who are going off to college this fall or in the falls to come, uh, professors, other students will say, how can you believe this garbage, this Bible? I mean, God tells them to go and do uh, genocide. It's racist. It's wrong. And so how do you answer that? Certainly there's... A lot that could be said about that. I'm not going to get into all of that this morning, but let me give you a couple insights into this to be thinking about, to be praying about, to be searching the scriptures for and seeking to understand how to answer that question because it will be asked of you at one point or another. So first of all, we need to understand that this kind of thing was very uncommon. God didn't often tell the Israelites, go and completely wipe out men, women, and children, right? That was very uncommon. He did that with the Canaanites. He did that also with the Amalekites. He had reasons for that. It wasn't just, oh yeah, go and just annihilate anybody and everybody. You know, He had a very specific reason for the Amalekites. And he mentioned it in verse 2. Uh, in verse 2, he talked about how when the Israelites had just come out of slavery in Egypt for 400 years, they're finally free, and they're going in the desert to go to Mount Sinai to receive instructions on how to live. At that moment, they came and they began to pick off and try to destroy Israel, all those who were weak. Specifically, it says that they were killing children. Certainly then, if they were picking off the weak, it was the elderly, uh, the crippled, people who couldn't defend themselves. The Amalekites came after them and came after them hard. 
they were basically a terrorist organization. And God knew, and He says, He warns them, look, the Amalekites, as long as they live, they'll continue to attack you and, and, and try to destroy you for the rest of your existence, Israel. They need to go. They need to be done. And the interesting thing is God knows the future. He knows their hearts. He knew that if they were allowed to continue, that they would continue to do this from generation to generation. God knows that once we get to a certain point, we give ourselves over to sin. We give ourselves up to sin, letting sin truly be our master. And there's a point where God finally says, enough is enough. This needs to stop. And he stops it his way. We see Israel, God using Israel to, to, to really annihilate the people, the Amalekites. Like the flood, like the flood, God destroyed all the earth, all the people, except for eight, because of the wickedness that had been going on for generations. And then we also see in Sodom and Gomorrah, God rains down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah because of their perversion, uh, their wickedness. Uh, And then we see God using the Israelites. Uh, He used the flood, he used the fire, now he's using the Israelites for his reason and his purposes. They were a tool to accomplish what he was seeking to accomplish. Um, and then one thing this reminds us of as well is that ultimately from Genesis chapter 2 throughout the whole Bible, there's a, a principle, a spiritual principle that God sets up, which is this. Uh, the punishment for sin is what? Ultimately, it's death. Ultimately, it's death, right? So God is demonstrating to all people, look, if you go in the way of the Amalekites, that is death. It leads to death. The Israelites would see that, all the surrounding Nations would see that. We read that. It's a reminder that sin leads to death, ultimately. And so God tells them to do this this really horrible thing. But he had his reasons, his purposes. And and, and then this leads us to the question again. um, How can we set ourselves up for a fall? How did Saul set himself up for a fall? Now, what we read in the next few verses is that it looks like King Saul is going to obey God. And we're getting excited. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible and I see someone obeying God, I'm like, yes! And then when they do it, I'm like, no! You know, uh, I do that with myself too. No! You sinned again! You know. Anyway, verse 4. Verse 4 says, So Saul summoned the people and, and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 men on foot, that's a lot, and 10,000 men of Judah. These, this was his army. And Saul uh, came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, this is another group of people, go depart, uh, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So they believed uh, what Saul was saying. And this reminds us of the truth in Scripture, in reality, that God blesses those who bless Israel, and he curses those who curse Israel, right? And then verse 7, we see he does, it seems, what God told him to do. And verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, uh, which is east of Egypt. Yes, way to go, Saul. God told you to do it, something, and you did what he told you to do. You obeyed. Well done, Saul. Don't get too excited too soon, (laughs) What we're going to see is that Saul obeyed to a certain point, but it was ultimately partial obedience. It was ultimately selective 
obedience. And we see that starting in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. It says, And he, that's uh, King Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites. What a name, right? I'm going to name my next son Agag. Uh, king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, that is his soldiers, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So let me ask you a question. Did Saul obey or disobey? Wait a minute. Come on. You guys, you guys are a bunch of judgmental people here. I mean, look at this. He, he, he did almost 99% of what he was supposed to do, right? You're right. God views partial obedience as disobedience. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty intense. Well, what is partial disobedience? It's obeying partly. That's pretty straightforward. I can remember when my kids were young, uh, Edith and I learned this you know, terminology from somewhere and we, we used it a lot and it's still uh, a good memory to me uh, for myself with my obedience to God. But it says this, obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. Anyone heard that before? Right? We used to, yeah, we used to tell that to our kids and every once in a while, I still do. Um, but I need to tell it to myself as well. Obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's what God desires of us is total obedience. Not partial, not selective. Well, what's selective obedience? It's selecting the commands or the parts of the command that we want to do, that we're okay with. You know, there's certain things in the Bible where you're like, well, yeah, you know, that, that kind of comes natural, naturally to me. I understand why God is commanding me to do that. But then there are other commands that you go, whoa, oh man, do I... I, I really have to do that, or I really can't do that. And you're like, I don't know if that's going to work for me, right? That's selective obedience. When we put ourselves in the position where we are selecting which commands to obey and which commands not to obey, who really is in charge of our lives? We are. We're kind of saying, um, God, you just kind of go over there. I'll, I'll, I'll look to you when I need you. I'll obey the commands that I like, but really kind of I'm in charge of my life. And that's that. That's within all of us. We have the Holy Spirit who has given us new birth, made us a new creation. But as long as we live in this body, we still have our flesh, our sinful nature. So every day is a battle and it's tough. It's stressful. It is hard. And I think to myself so often, why do I still have these thoughts and desires? I'm so mad at myself, right? It's because my flesh is still there. And it needs to, be, needs to be killed. But so, it was as if King Saul was saying, I'm king. I'm above the rules. I can decide how I obey God or disobey God. Right? None of us are kings or queens, but we can sometimes have that attitude that we're above the law. Right? Everyone else needs to obey those laws, but I've been here long enough. I kind of... I've been a Christian for a while. I get it. I can kind of do what I want to do. God says, no. He's looking for total obedience. He's looking for complete obedience. Is that something we'll ever be able to fully do this side of heaven? No. Because like I said, we still have the sinful nature. 
Yet if our goal is just, well, I'll just obey him partly, that'll be good enough. It's a whole lot different than saying, God, I'm a sinner in need of your Holy Spirit's power to turn from my sin and to obey you. I want to obey you in all things. See the difference? Knowing God that I'm going to fail, and that's exactly why Jesus died on the cross. Because he knows that we're going to fail. He knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we have failed and have sinned. So the apostle, uh, not the apostle, but the, the king, King Saul. King Saul is a good example of a bad example. And we can learn how to fall and to fail as we look at what he did. Uh, setting himself up thinking, oh, partial obedience is fine. God's okay with that. Selective obedience is fine, but it's not. Secondly, if you're following the notes, how do we set ourselves up to fall? How do we set ourselves up to fail? Uh, allow your selfish desires and motives to go unchecked and to rule your life. Allow them to go unchecked. We've got that sinful nature. We get these desires. And in today's day and age, the whole idea is you've got to be your authentic self. So whatever desire you have, you better live that out. Oh man, you want to know how many people would, you know, I don't know, be killed if, if I just went ahead and followed my sinful nature? Maybe killed is a little bit, you know, over the top. But you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, it's, we, we have to keep our sinful nature in check, right? But King Saul says, no, we'll just go with it. This is how I feel. I'm going to do what I desire to do. Um, and, and we see this uh, in the rest of the chapter. And, and what I want to uh, kind of share with you, and you'll see it up on the screen, is this idea that there are sinful roots that result in sinful fruits. Okay? You should see up on the screen in a minute here, but there's sinful roots with a tree, right? So if a tree, uh, there, something's wrong with the roots, it, it can't uh, take in enough water or nutrients, what's going to happen to the fruits of that tree? They're going to die, they're not going to be produced, you know, etc. It's going to be unhealthy, all that sort of thing. So we need to understand what, what are the sinful roots in our hearts that produce the sinful fruits. We see the sinful fruits like Saul's disobedience. I'm going to choose to do what God told me not to do. That's the fruit. But what was the root? What, what brought him to that place? I mean, you think about it. He had seen Samuel all his life. Samuel was so faithful. Samuel was a man of God. Everything that Samuel said, First um, Samuel says, it came true all the prophecies he made. And he tells Saul, listen, God's telling me this. You need to do this. What was it in Saul's mind that said, no, I don't need to obey that. I can do it my way. It was the sinful roots that then corrupted the fruits of his life. And so let's think about some of those sinful roots that, that Saul had, that we have. Uh, there's certainly way more than are listed here in uh, 1 Samuel 15 but it does expose a number of fruits in his life and in our lives. So uh, one fruit that we see is, is pride in his life. And I'll show you that in a minute, but let me just say this about pride. The Bible does seem to say that there's, there's a healthy pride, like in Galatians 6, 3, where it talks about uh, you can take pride in yourself and your own accomplishments without comparing yourself to somebody else. Because as soon as you start comparing yourself, you're saying, like, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm so great. Check me out. See, that's pride. That's arrogance. That's boasting. That's conceit. And that is what God does not want. Okay? But this is what King Saul had. 
And this root of sin is within all of us, isn't it? It's within all of us. And we get it from our ancestors. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? So let's see where we see this in Saul's life. Take a look, for example, at verse 12. So this is where Samuel begins to confront Saul. In verse 12, it says, And Saul rose early to meet, no, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, uh, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he, that Saul, set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So King Saul uh, beats the Amalekites uh, and, and takes uh, Agag and the best of the flocks and sets up a monument to himself. You see any pride there? Look at me. I get the credit, right? Who really gets the credit for, for any battle that Israel wins? God gets the credit. I mean, you look throughout the Bible, it's over and over, it's God's the one who's working in and through the situation. Uh, but here, Saul, instead of giving credit to God and saying, God, thank you, you did it, he says, look at what I've done. You see the pride there? He set up a monument. I don't know if it was like a statue of him or what it was, it doesn't say. Um, and then we see some more of his pride uh, just in him taking Agag. If you look back at verse 9 there, uh, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen. Now my question is, when I read that, why did he spare Agag and not just one of the regular old soldiers? What's a big deal? You got a soldier. You got the king, right? He's saying, look at me. I'm greater than this king. I am awesome. All praise to me, right? See his pride, his arrogance, his conceit. Um, so we see that over and over in Saul's life uh, in here in chapter 15. And uh, we, we live in an interesting day and age in, um, in the use of the word pride. Uh, so June now has been called what month? Pride month. LGBTQ pride month. And what is it that those who celebrate LGBTQ pride month, what are they prideful about? Sexual sin of all kinds. Sexual perversion of every color, right? That's what they're saying. Look at what we can do. I even saw one post that said, not today, Jesus. Not today, Jesus. We're going to do our own thing. You see some pride in that? So what does God say to our pride? To all pride? I'll take a look up on the screen here at Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Wait a minute, I thought God was a God of love. Well, God hates certain things, right? Seven that are an abomination to Him. Listen to this, verse 17. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. What are haughty eyes? It's a synonym for pride, for arrogance. It's looking down your nose. I'm better than you. Look how great I am, right? That's haughty eyes. Yeah. So God, he, the very first thing he says he hates is pride, arrogance, conceit, haughty eyes. And then this proverb that is well known, Proverbs 16, 18, you'll see it up on the screen. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a what? Before a fall. You want to set yourselves up for a fall? Allow your pride within you to go unchecked. And it's there. Just let it go unchecked. If you want to have victory over the sin in your life, ask God for the power, the wisdom, 
the strength, the understanding to overcome that pride in your life and for him to expose it when it's starting to crop up its ugly head. So King Saul, um, he disobeyed God. That was a fruit. One of the roots that brought him to the place of that disobedience was the root of pride in his heart and his soul, right? Another root that we see in King Saul, and then I think that it's in all of us in one way or another because of our sinful nature, is the root of greed. Saul was greedy, and he wanted that stuff. Oh man, it was good stuff, and he wanted it. We read about that. Uh, Look at verse 9 again. Uh, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and of the fatted calves. That's another way of saying, you know, this great calf. uh, And of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Yeah, we don't care about getting rid of the stuff we don't want. But he said, look, the best, the good stuff. I want that. In that day and age, they didn't have banks, so they would amass their wealth in different ways. One was by amassing uh, many livestock and, and so forth. And so he's amassing wealth for himself. And to see that it was for himself and not really for his men, even though in verse 9 it, he made it sound like, oh, it was for me and my men. It was really just for me. <laughs> Look at verse 19. Why then, this is Samuel confronting him, why then uh, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Uh, those words, pounce on the spoil, in the Old Testament were a way of saying that you, uh, people would do that when they would greedily take the plunder from whoever they just defeated. Not only so, but in that question, why did you pounce on the plunder? That word you is singular. It's not plural. He's not saying, why did you all pounce on But he said, why, Saul, did you personally? Your goal was to get all that good stuff for yourself personally. He was being greedy. And we all have that root of greed within us that needs to be checked, that needs to be reminded. Where do we see some of the fruits of our greed, of that root? You know, it might be, well, I don't really need to completely be honest on my taxes because, you know, I mean, not everyone else is and no one will ever find out. And it's only a little bit and the government doesn't need the money anyway. Right? Or, I don't really need to, to, to give to God. He's, he's got plenty of money. He doesn't need my money. <laughs> uh, or I, it's okay if I get into a little bit more debt. You know, just, just a little more debt. No, it won't hurt anybody. I think the root of greed is within all of us. Also, another, another root, one more root we'll look at is the root of the fear of people, right? The fear of people. Take a look at verse 24, and we see this in King Saul. This is another root that led him to the fruit of disobedience. This is another root that leads us to various fruits in our lives. Verse 24, it says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because, listen to this, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The fear of man. Another word for that, of course, is people pleasing, right? God calls us to please Him, not to please ourselves, not to please other people, but to please Him. But in our desire for people to like us, our desire for people to look up to us, our desire for people to worship us, we will do whatever they want to make them happy. Even if it's against God's Word, you know. And we've all felt that temptation from time to time. Saul felt it so strongly, his men... Uh, it appears that they were pressuring him. Oh, you got to keep the good stuff, Paul or Saul. Keep the good stuff. You know, keep King Agag. They were 
whispering in his ear, and he's like, oh, i got to get these guys to like me, to think I'm a good king, so I'm going to do uh, what they tell me to do. The fear of people, pleasing people, greed, pride. These roots and many others produce the fruit of disobedience in one form or another in our lives and through our lives. So uh, Proverbs 29:25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, which is a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man. Let's trust in the Lord. Got to trust in him. That we don't need to fear people. So then, finally, thirdly, uh, how do we set ourselves up for a fall and for failure? <laughs> how do we do this? We've, we've looked so far at, at the fact that we are, use uh, uh, selective obedience and partial obedience and, and that we don't keep our sinful desires and motives in check. We let them rule our decisions in our lives. But thirdly, if you're following the notes, here's a third way uh, to set ourselves up for failure. When you sin, lie about it, blame others, make excuses, get defensive, and especially deny it. Okay, you got that down? You wrote that down? Okay, just remember to do that. Wait a minute. We already knew how to do that. We don't have to teach our kids how to do that. They automatically know. Have you noticed that? I never had to be taught how to do that. I just automatically knew. I'm a genius. You know, it's called the sinful nature, once again, right? So, so and this is what we see in King Saul's life right here. This is what we see in our lives. Uh, when we recognize that we've sinned or someone confronts us with sin, we go to these uh, worldly, fleshly ways, right? And we see this. Let me just show you some of these in um, King Saul's life where we see him doing these things. First of all, he lies about it in verse 13 when uh, Samuel comes to him to confront him. In verse 13, it says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you in the Lord. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Liar. There's an old saying, sinners are liars. Isn't that true? Yes. Um, Not only did he lie about it, he also blamed others. The men who laid their lives on the line for him, his soldiers, he throws them under the bus and blames them. Uh, we, we saw that at different points. Um, uh, let's see, uh, let, me, let me point to you to, I think, verse 15. Yeah, Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, that is the soldiers, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. He blames them and he does it again and again throughout this, his conversation with Saul, with, with uh, Samuel. Um, so he blames and he makes excuses. Makes excuses. And that, the one in 15 is the one that cracks me up the most. Where, where he says, okay, they took Agag and the flocks. And then he says, here's why. To sacrifice to the Lord your God and uh, the rest we have devoted to destruction. In other words, he's saying, You'll really be impressed with this one, Samuel. We disobeyed God so that we could worship God. See what he's doing? We disobeyed God so that we could sacrifice to him. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way, Saul. Sorry. Okay. And then he gets really defensive and denies, denies disobeying God at all. Look at verse 20. It says, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought King uh, Ahag, Agag, king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, here he goes blaming them again, 
took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoting them to destruction, excuse to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he completely denies it. I have done all these things. In our sinful nature, we, we are blinded to areas where we choose not to obey, right? We just focus on, well, I've been doing well in this area, God. Can't you appreciate me for that? God's saying, that's good. However, there's some sin in your life you got to deal with, right? So he's doing with, with King Saul here. He gets defensive. He even denies doing it. And then what, Saul, what Samuel says to Saul here is really beautiful and profound, and it's really a truth throughout Scripture that we see again and again. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. And Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, in other words, listen up. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, which is what Saul did, is as the sin of divination, which is witchcraft, and presumption, which can also be translated as arrogance, is as iniquity and idolatry. Listen to his consequence. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, the Lord, has also rejected you, Saul, from being king. In other words, at this very moment, God fired him from his job as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, he lost his dynasty. In 1 Samuel 15, he loses his kingdom. He's no longer king in God's eyes. If he were to obey God, what he, what he would have done was said, okay, God, I'm going to leave the throne and I'm going to go back to my father's ranch and work there the rest of my life. But he did just the opposite. Saul tried all he could to hold on to his kingdom. After Samuel says, look, you're no longer king, listen to what Saul says in verse 24. We read it earlier. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, a lot of people have asked me, and maybe they've asked you, why was it that it seems that God was so merciful to King David when he sinned and so harsh to King Saul when he sinned? Part of the answer, not, not the whole answer, but part of the answer is the way they confessed their sin and repented of their sin. The question is, was, was Saul's repentance and confession genuine or false? It was false. How do we know that? Well, when he's confronted, what does he do? We just looked at it. He lied about it. He made excuses. He denied it. He blamed others. Uh, he, he, he defended himself. And it was only until after Samuel said, here's the consequence, you just lost your kingdom, that he finally goes, oh, oh, I better, what, what am I supposed to say? Oh, 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 that's right, I sinned. You know, please have God pardon my sin for me. How do we know if confession and repentance is genuine? If they follow through and obey after that, rather than continuing in their sin. God said, you're fired. What he did was, for the next number of years, tried to hold on to his kingdom and his kingship with all of his might, even to the point of trying to kill the next king who he knew was supposed to replace him, King David, again and again. 
We know genuine repentance because we change. King Saul did not change. This was fake. King David changed. And you can read about his repentance in first, no, 2 Samuel chapter 12. I wrote this on your notes. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in um, Psalm chapter 51, where actually the whole psalm is about him just pouring out his soul to God. God, I sinned. I blew it. Oh, God, have mercy on me. And it gives a good example of how to respond when we have sinned. So, God is saying, don't follow the example of Saul in this case. Instead, follow the example of Paul or David. We don't always follow the example of David. But in this case, with confession and repentance, um, don't blame others. Don't make excuses. Don't deny it. Fess up. I did it. It was wrong. I want to change. And God, help me. I can't change with my own strength. I need your power, your grace, your strength. And he does help you. We also need the help of each other, right? Admitting it to each other. I need your help. That's what the body of Christ is about, right? So finally, as we close chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, and we looked at how do we set ourselves up to fail, right? How do we set ourselves up to fall? But really the whole point is that, no, we would do just the opposite, right? So instead of, as we saw at the beginning, instead of convincing ourselves that partial and selective obedience is fine with God, Convince yourself that total obedience is what he wants us to aim for, trusting in his forgiveness when we need it. And, and then secondly, instead of just letting your selfish desires and motives uh, run your life and go unchecked, uh, keep them under control by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And then, and then thirdly, um, to keep us from falling, don't just blame others and make excuses and lie about it and so forth. Instead, fess up to God. Repent of your sin and ask him for power and grace and strength to truly turn from that sin. Should we ask him that this morning as we close? Let's do it. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for this scripture in, in 1 Samuel 15. Um, it not only exposes Saul's heart, it also exposes ours. Uh, Father, we have uh, sinful roots within us and we pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to truly kill those roots so that we can produce good fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives. I pray that for myself. I pray that for each and every one here. God, give us the strength to turn away from our pride and to live with genuine humility toward you and toward others. Teach us your word. Show us where we are falling short. Remind us that Christ died for where we have fallen short, uh, that you are our Father. We are secure in your love. But give us the grace and strength to truly turn away from those things that don't please you, that offend you, and go against your word. We pray these things for ourselves and for all those we know and love. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship the Lord.